So uh, when I was in my sophomore year in college, I uh, had the first opportunity to be traveling on my own. It was my first time ever doing any kind of traveling on my own. So uh, just to give you an example of everything that was involved, I was going to Guatemala. This was my first time going to Guatemala. I, uh, was, uh, I was connected to a missionary couple there, uh, and so we were going to do a trip together. I was going to go uh, stay with a pastor and his wife down in Guatemala. Uh, so I was leaving my home and doing all of the traveling myself, which essentially meant that I was going to be driving from my home uh, down to St. Louis to the airport. I was going to be getting on the plane by myself. I was going to be flying. I was going to be meeting somebody there. I was probably like 21 or 22 at this point, but there's just the reality, like all of this, all of these details together, I had to do this for the first time on my own. And so uh, it was like a two and a half hour drive from where I was to the hotel, from uh, where I was coming from to the hotel. And, uh, you know, I had to wake up at like seven o'clock in the morning, or the flight left at seven o'clock in the morning. So I had to get up at like four o'clock in the morning or something like that. So, uh, so I leave where I'm coming from. And, uh, and I'm trying to figure all this stuff out, right? We didn't have GPS at the time, like on our phone. Well, we did have GPS, but I did not have GPS. Uh, in fact, the, the phones, uh, I, I still had a dumb phone at this point, right? So, uh, so no smartphones, right? I have to figure out the way. This is uh, back in the dark ages when we used to print MapQuest off of our computer, right, to tell us the direction that we ought to go. And all of the people who might be somewhat or a little bit older than me are saying, why is MapQuest? quest the dark ages like what does that make me when we had to just open up our atlases and figure out what way that we're supposed to go right yeah so you all know about that right so I had my map quest sitting in my car uh, and then like I kind of knew the beginning of the way that I was supposed to go I knew it pretty well I knew how to kind of get on track but here's the thing without GPS kind of the the glowing screen staring at my face telling me that I'm going the right way uh, I'm not going to pick up all of the, the scrambled pieces of paper from the car seat next to me and try to navigate those in the middle of while I'm driving, right? So that's challenging. So I have to rely on something to let me know that I'm going the right way, right? So when you're driving and you don't have GPS, and you're like, what do you rely on to let you know that you're going the right way? You have road signs, Right? It's like an amazing concept. As you drive on the road, it's like, so I'm, I'm going to St. Louis, right? I'm going to a hotel by the St. Louis airport. And so I am watching the road signs as they say, St. Louis, 150 miles. St. Louis, 100 miles. St. Louis, 50 miles, right? Like I, I am able to go, I'm able to follow because these signs are telling me that I'm going the right way. They gave me assurance that the way that I had chosen was the correct way. And then at one point, about two hours and 20 minutes in, remember this is supposed to be a two and a half hour drive, at one point, about two hours and 20 minutes in, I realized something. I realized that I had stopped seeing those signs. I, the, I, I, they disappeared. And I, I wasn't like keeping track. I didn't actually, I couldn't remember the last time that I saw one of those signs. In fact, now at this point, I had uh, signs telling me uh, that my next destination was Jefferson City, which is like in the middle of the state of Missouri, right? Not very far away from St. Louis. I had signs telling me that Lake of the Ozarks was a way, ways away now, right? Like I had signs telling me that, oh, this is the way to the, no signs for St. Louis anywhere on my, my journey. And so uh, I panicked. 
for a hot second, just a hot second. And then, uh, and then I like got my composure. I figured, I figured out what was going on. And so why did I panic? Well, because number one, I did not know how long I had been going the wrong direction. I had no indication of the best way to get back on track. I had a 7 a.m. flight. I had to wake up at 4 a.m. And it's dark right now as I'm driving, right? So, uh, so I pulled over. I got my map quest out. Uh, I kind of, okay, I think I can get back to where I'm going by watching this. And so I found the next exit so that I could turn back around on the interstate and get headed the right way. And sure enough, what did I start seeing when I turned around? I saw signs that told me I was going to St. Louis, right? So this is a really, really good thing. The signs kept me trusting that the path I was on were, was the right path. I had uh, some tools that kind of told me the path and some kind of ideas about the way that I should start going, but the signs did everything that they could just to kind of like relieve my anxiety, right? So the signs helped me to trust. Um, today we are continuing a series called How Jesus Made Followers. Uh, and we're watching Jesus as he kind of draws people from being casual observers to him, to engaged followers of him, to people who are actually like doing his work among other people. And so we're kind of examining his process to learn something from him. And, and here's the thing. Jesus was in the process of building a movement in which he was kind of the central figure of that movement. Right? He talked about the kingdom of heaven. And guess what? He's the king, right? He talked about freedom and liberty and healing. And guess what? He's the savior and the healer, right? He talked about God's forgiveness. And guess what? He's the forgiver, right? He changed. He was like kind of challenging the status quo. You couldn't just like go along with the way things were. You had to change your way of operating. He called followers to be willing to be persecuted for his sake, right? So this movement that he's building is very Jesus-centered, right? Jesus is building a very Jesus-centered movement, and he's laying out clear instruction for his people. He's giving them kind of a roadmap that they ought to follow. But if people are going to, to actually trust him, right, they're going to need more than just instruction. They need more than just his own claim that he is the Messiah. They need more than just seeing other people follow him. They need signs. They need something to tell them that they are going the right way. They need confirmation that this is the right way to go. So we're going to talk about signs this morning. Uh, and I just ask a question to start us out. What are signs. What are signs? As we look at them in scripture, there are kind of three things that I think describe them. First of all, signs are personal. Signs are personal. Signs somehow, every time we look at something that Jesus does in a significant way, some kind of miracle that he performs, some kind of sign that points people in a particular direction, it's interesting. They always relate to people on a very personal level. Right? They always kind of have a significant impact for an individual or a group of individuals. So signs are personal. Number two, signs are powerful. Right? Like there's no other explanation for the things that happen with Jesus' signs other than it must be God's power at work. Right? Because you see nature operating in ways that we are not, not used to nature operating. Right? And then finally, signs are promise-oriented. Right, uh, they, they are fulfillments of God's promises, 
right? So as you could, with all of Jesus's miracles, you could probably trace every single one of them back to some Old Testament passage that was talking about the things that would come along with the Messiah. Or, or not only would they fulfill prophecy, but some of those things that Jesus did, some of those signs pointed forward into the future to things that were going to happen as a result of what he was doing. Right, so, so these three characteristics, that they were personal, powerful, and promise-oriented. So to kind of give us a solid understanding of signs, a definition, signs are this. They are personal displays of divine promise-keeping power. Right, time and again, it is through these signs that Jesus provides confirmation to those who are following that, hey, like, you can trust me. Like, I, you can follow me. I am who I say that I am. Right? It's that divine kind of promise-keeping power uh, of Jesus that we are going to consider this morning as we think about how he made followers. So this morning we're going to track three different characteristics of Jesus' power that made Jesus' power so compelling. And we're going to do it with this story in John chapter 2. So John 2 verse 1, it says this, On the third day they were, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Mary was there. And Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. So, so just a note, uh, what is a wedding in this culture? For what it's worth, the wedding is the culmination of family life and work. Right, like uh, when, when a mother and a father see one of their children get married, like this is the buildup of everything that you have been working towards. Like if you can marry off your children, this is a great success. Right? And this is, this is kind of how you operate in society. This is one of the big cultural markers that your family is doing what it ought to do in society. Right? So a lot of reputation for the family is tied to this event. Honor, hospitality, like all of these things are evident in the way that a family hosts a wedding. And for what it's worth, Jesus' family was probably very close to one of the families that is hosting. And we know that because not only was Jesus invited, but he was invited along with these disciples who only kind of just started following him. Right? So there had to be some kind of close connection between Jesus' family and this family that is uh, having this wedding, holding the wedding. So verse 3 says this. It says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said, to him. They have no wine. So it's unclear to us what exactly Mary's role is in all of this, but it seems that she has been placed in charge of, or at least kind of stepped in to help out with some of the details of this wedding. And so why is she concerned? Well, if there is no wine, at the wedding, you just think of like cultural markers of what it means to hold a, a, a good wedding, to, to welcome people well, to be a hospitable host of something, right? Wine is a big deal in this culture for what it means to do this. And uh, so for this family, who apparently is probably pretty close to Jesus's family, their honor is on the line. Their reputation, like reputation of dear friends of Jesus's family is on the line. Right, like if the wedding is the culmination of family life and work, there is high value in everything going as it should. Right? And there's high value in people being well cared for and well served. So the risk here 
if they've run out of wine, is that this event will actually turn out to be a failure and act like Mary cares deeply about the reputation of the hosts in this situation. So, so why the concern? That's a fair question. That's the concern. Why come to Jesus about it? Like, why, why approach Jesus? Like, I don't know if... I don't know if in Mary's mind at this moment, she actually thought that Jesus was going to do a miracle or if she just kind of knew that Jesus was good at solving problems. Like, I don't know what necessarily was in her head, but let's, like, let's look at what's happening with Jesus right now. Jesus has re- recently done kind of more traveling, I think probably than at any point in his life, right? He's been traveling around to a few different places. He's been gathering people who are interested in following him. He's recently been baptized, which is a significant piece of kind of the initial steps of what it means for him to step into his ministry. He started to like significantly gather some people behind him. And so Mary knows about Jesus because the angel told her, like, Jesus is... He's the Messiah, right? And she knows as she's watching Jesus that even like Jesus is starting to step into that role as Messiah with the baptism, with the uh, kind of gathering followers to himself. And she has kind of in her head, I'm sure she knows with everything that she's witnessed kind of up to Jesus's birth along with that, she, she has to know that there is some kind of divine power that accompanies the Messiah, Right, but there's, there's something additional to consider here and something that we might gloss over because this is, like, this is not only just Mary generally being aware that divine power should accompany the Messiah, but what's interesting is that the Messiah is particularly equipped, if you read Old Testament passages, to do something about wine. Jesus, like the Messiah in Old Testament passages in the Messianic age and the things that were coming with God's new kingdom, like all of this talked to some degree about the significance that wine would play, right? So, so when Mary approaches Jesus, she says to Jesus, like, because you're the Messiah, I actually think that you can do something about this. Amos 9, 13 and 14 says this. It's a, a promise about uh, what's to come in God's new kingdom. Promises about the messianic age. And, and so verse 13, it says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seeds, and the mountains shall drip sweet wine. And all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. And they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Right, so for Jewish people, the Messianic age, it is all about restoration. And one of those significant symbols of restoration is that there will be a lot of wine and it will be very, very good wine. Right? That's like, that's the promise that comes along with that. Which, so when the Messiah comes, it actually, in Mary's mind, as she is like a Jewish person who is aware of these messianic prophecies, right? It makes sense that the Messiah would be equipped to handle a situation like this. Right? Mary has been watching Jesus increasingly step into this role. And so she comes to him to address this because he actually is equipped to address this. So, so for what it's worth, the first characteristic uh, 
of Jesus' power, because this is a significant moment of desperation, Jesus' power shines in moments of desperation. And we're going to witness how that happens in just a second. But Jesus is able to kind of enter into the the moment of risk and the moment of concern for this family, and he's going to allow his power to shine in a really significant way. It's a very personal nature of what he does. It's really interesting, too, to me that Jesus doesn't kind of just like put his power on for show. Right? Like he doesn't just like throw it out there to, to make a big show, to impress a lot of people. But in his moments when Jesus is expressing his power, he's always doing it to meet somebody in the midst of brokenness. Right? He heals sick people. He brings abundance where there is something lacking. He offers forgiveness and acceptance where there is shame. Right, and so this is, this is part of how Jesus made followers. He gave them very personal demonstrations of his power. So that like, when we find ourselves in moments of desperation, because we watched him meet other people in moments of desperation, we know that we can trust him. Not, for what it's worth, that he will always use his power in the way that we want him to use it, but that he will, by his power, find a way to meet us in the midst of that desperation and receive the healing that we need. So Mary, in this moment, she cannot solve the desperation, right? She has come to the end of herself. She doesn't know what to do, but she knows that Jesus, who is particularly equipped to do something about wine, she knows that the Messiah does. And so she comes and says they have no wine. And this is what Jesus said to her. Verse four. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I will have to let you know, this has been, like in my time of like studying scripture and trying to understand, this has been one of the most confusing verses for me in the whole Bible, right? Because by my English reading of this, Jesus is like a disrespectful turd here, right? Like he's just not kind, right? Like woman, what does this have to do with me? Leave me alone. Why are you bothering me with this? Right? So, so my inclination initially was to not even deal with it, right? Like to kind of skip over it. But, uh, but more, the more kind of I, I sunk in, like trying to sit with the depth of it, it impacted me. Like as I kind of grasped what was going on, it impacted me on a, a deeper level than I would have expected. So there are a few things that oh, we need to highlight. So first of all, as John uh, in his gospel tells the story of Jesus, anytime he uses the phrase, my hour, or, uh, in this, when, like when Jesus is talking about things and Jesus says something like my hour, it always universally refers to the moment of his death and then also the subsequent resurrection. Right, so whenever he says my hour, he's always pointing forward to Jesus' death for sin. Second of all, Mary knows that Jesus' role as Messiah will create significant trouble for him. And she knows this because when uh, she brought Jesus in uh, for kind of the, the Jewish rites of purification and all this stuff, she brought Jesus into the temple and, and Simeon, or sorry, sorry uh, yes, uh, the priest, he came and he blessed Jesus. And uh, he gave these words to Mary. He said, uh, your son is appointed for the rising and falling of many in Israel, a sign that is opposed, right? This is what she said, or what he said about Jesus. He will be a sign that is opposed. And oh, by the way, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. 
This is what was said about Jesus. Mary knew that there was something ominous about Jesus stepping into his role as Messiah. And and she knew that it would create a lot of trouble for him. And then finally, thirdly, Jesus, for Jesus to kind of step into his role as Messiah, he must step out of his role as son. Like, Like up to this point in his life, Jesus has been Jesus son of Joseph and Mary. But as Messiah, he must exclusively be Jesus, son of God. So he says, woman. And we think he's being very disrespectful because uh, all of the sons in this room know if we ever spoke that to our mothers, we would get slapped across the face. Uh, and, and Jeannie's over there nodding. Yes, you're right. If my son ever spoke to me like that. <laughs> He says, woman. And he, he says this, so, so the, the disrespect tone doesn't carry over in the, the Greek language, right? The reason he says woman is because he's being very intentional not to say mother. There are only two times in this, uh, in this gospel that we see Jesus interact with his mother. Both times he calls her woman, and both times have to do with him not being her son anymore. So he says, woman. Then he asks a question. Literally, he says, uh, what, he says, what does this have to do with me? Literally, what he's saying is what to me and to you. What to me and to you. So there's like some relationship, like this, this event that's happening uh, He's saying, this, you're, you're bringing this to me as if it has a significant impact. So he asks this question, what to me and to you? And what, typically what we think he's saying when we read this is he, we think that he's saying, why are you bothering me with this? Right? Like, why is this the thing that you're coming to me with? But that's not it. What he's actually doing when he says, what to me and to you, he's saying, he's asking her to recognize the gravity of what it is she's approaching him with. He's saying, if you're asking me to enact my messianic role, then what you're saying is, you're ready to let me go. You're ready for our relationship to not be the same as it has been up to this point. Is this the thing that you want to make that happen? Is this the thing that you're choosing? So he says, my hour has not yet come. My hour is still far off. If I step in to solve this problem, I set in chain a motion of events that will lead to my death. Are you ready for that? Right, this is not an annoyed Jesus saying, why are you bothering me with this? This is a tender Jesus warning his mom that to solve this problem means that from this moment forward, he will be the full-fledged Messiah and that she has to let him go. And how does she respond to the warning? In verse five, he puts it in her hands. And in verse five, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Right, consider the depth of Mary's compassion in that moment. That 
she willingly accepts what it means to let Jesus go. And she, you know, she knows that this was always going to happen, right? But in this moment, she, she is willing to come to acceptance of what it means to let him go so that she can preserve the reputation of her friends in this moment. She hands authority over to Jesus. She says to the servants, okay, I'm ready. Whatever he says, you will do. And so, so this whole interaction clues us into the second characteristic of Jesus' Jesus's power, and it is this. Jesus' power is core to his identity. Jesus' power is core to his identity. When he exercises his power, it is reflective of his divine messianic identity. Right? And so the moment that she asks him to kind of step in and solve this problem, this was the chain of events that would lead to his death because it was all wrapped up in his identity as the Son of God, God in the flesh. Like there are things that you would expect to see if the Son of God, God made flesh, was walking amongst us and Jesus is now enacting those things as he steps into his identity. So then he starts solving the problem. In verse 6, it says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Uh, We don't know how many people were at this wedding, but for what it's worth, we are talking a lot of liquid here, right? Probably like 125 gallons of uh, water that's been poured into these uh, jars. So maybe, maybe there are 125 people at the wedding. You have a, a gallon per person available, right? Like this is, there's a lot. The point is there's a lot, right? So verse 8, he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Uh, for what it's worth, the master of the feast is kind of like the event coordinator, Right? So he's overseeing the distribution of food. He's making sure that everything is running smoothly. He's probably among the first to really feel the weight of knowing there's no wine left. Right? Like he, he is on top of all of this. And, and so when the servants come bringing jars, he's like, what in the world is this? Like I did not know that there could be something in there. He's feeling the pressure of all of this. And so verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. And did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Right? So like imagine his relief. He's feeling the weight of the kind of the desperate moment of this situation. He's in charge of making sure that all of this stuff runs well. And so he lifts, he kind of takes the taste test and he's like, what in the world happened? And not only that, like they've, they've had wine in this place the whole time. They've, in fact, they've had an abundance of it in this place the whole time. But then it says this, it says that the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, right? And this is not hard to figure out, right? You start with the good stuff and then you move to the watered down stuff as the night goes on. And, and, and then he says this, but you have kept the good wine until now. So how unexpected is like every detail in this story? Like not only does Jesus make wine appear, which is in line with kingdom-oriented expectations, but the wine is really, really good wine. Like what a picture 
of abundance, of grace, in a place that was lacking, Jesus came and gave plenty. He gave the best. Right, so here's the picture of wine in scripture. Right, so, so we get in many places, especially in Proverbs, we get the idea that the drinking of much wine leads to drunkenness, and this is not highly regarded. This is not a thing that we should aim to do or aim to become. But at the same time, we get this, these pictures in the Old Testament of good wine being a picture of joy of the new kingdom that's going to come, a picture of the restoration of all things, a picture of an age of peace and prosperity. Right, so here's the, the third characteristic of Jesus' power. It is this, and this is what this shows us, that Jesus is really generous with his power. He's really generous with it. He's giving uh, abundance where there is lack. So verse 11 says this. It says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So notice, it says believed there. This is the moment where his disciples convert. Right? This is their conversion moment. Why? Because they witnessed the very personal nature of Jesus' power. Right, they experienced what it was to see Jesus meet people in a desperate situation. They watched him fulfill prophecy about the messianic age. Right, they were recipients of his generosity. And so this sign for them served as com- confirmation that they were going in the right direction. That they had ra- made the right decision. And they decided to follow the right guy. They believed in him. And our main point this morning is this, and this is what we want to kind of stick with. We're asking a question, how do we make Jesus followers? What does it mean to make Jesus followers? Our main point is this, everyone needs a personal experience of Jesus's power. Every person, every person needs a personal experience of Jesus's power. This is key to discipleship, right? Like not just that we would come and see Jesus, but that as we walk with Jesus, we would experience him moving and working in really unexpected ways. And that we would see his power and experience his power and that would confirm for us and continue to confirm as we go along the way that he is who he says he is. Right, so if we were to ask the question then, how do we make Jesus followers? Well, here's the answer. Like, we point them to Jesus in the midst of their desperation. That we may not know how Jesus is going to meet them in that desperation or what he's going to do. But we do know that we're not the ones to solve the problem for them, right? We're going to point them to the one who is powerful. And we, ha- we actually happen to know that he's in the business of meeting people in the midst of their desperation. Showing them his power and working for them in unexpected ways. So then kind of as a, as a summary, verse 12 says this. It says, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. So, uh, you know what's really interesting about this? His mother, she believes. His disciples, they believe. We just read that. His brothers, they don't believe. Uh, his brothers have yet to believe. In fact, uh, we're not aware of any of them believing until after Jesus comes back to life, after he died. Right? So, so it's really interesting. Uh, you have some people 
who had witnessed, personally witnessed Jesus' power at work, rubbing shoulders with people who weren't ready to believe yet. And they were talking about this as this thing that happened at this wedding. Okay, so what? So what? What are we going to do with all of this? Uh, Number one, signs are not the goal. They show us that we're going the right way, right? So can you imagine me driving to St. Louis and when I get to that St. Louis 150 sign, I, I drive up to the sign and I get out of my car and I pull my bags out of my car and I set up shop right there next to the, the sign, right? Like that would be ridiculous. Like the sign is not the point. The sign tells you that you're going the right way, right? So signs are about Like, signs are for those who are seeking and following Jesus. Signs in and of themselves or seeking the sign for itself is not the thing that we're called to, right? So so just that's an important note. And that's got to become a theme, too, for what it's worth, because you you read through the Gospel of John and the other Gospels, uh, you see people coming to Jesus simply for his signs, right? And the reason that Jesus gives the signs is to show that he's the one who he says he is. All right, so the encouragement there is to follow the goal, pursue the goal, pursue Jesus. Number two, there's probably a question, and it's an important question that we have to deal with. Uh, why don't we see as many miracles today as we hear about in the Bible? So first of all, as you ask that question, I want to tell you really clearly that miracles actually do still happen today, uh, if, especially if you hear that stuff about the Alliance, and we're going to be talking more and more about work going on around the world, right? All the time we get testimonies of people being healed. All the time we get uh, testimonies of people seeing Jesus in, in visions and in dreams and being drawn to follow him even though they had no previous context for him. Right? All around the world, Jesus still shows up in very miraculous ways. And we might, like, we might actually ask for those things. And in fact, in some cases, we're encouraged to ask for those things. But Jesus knows the display of his power that we need. And often, for what it's worth, it's not the one that we expect. Right? So while around the world, Jesus still works in miraculous ways, uh, He does not always work in miraculous ways, and he does not always work in the way that we want him to work. So with that being said, here's the clearest answer that I can give to this question of why we don't see Jesus work miraculously more often. So first of all, miraculous activity served to confirm Jesus' identity for all who were seeking after him at that point in history. Right? And it just so happens that we have those things written down so that the people who come after could look at the things that Jesus did and let those things confirm his identity down through the ages. Miraculous activity serves to confirm that Jesus' power had come to the church in the person of the Holy Spirit, right? And then Jesus actually still invites us to have deep personal experiences with him and then simultaneously to more often than not Trust the signs that he's already given us. The most significant being his resurrection as proof that he is who he says he is. So he gave us a bunch of signs at one point in history, a bunch of miracles, a bunch of miraculous things happened at one point in history, and that was meant to propel us forward. But that does not mean that Jesus does not work in miraculous ways still today. Uh, Finally, number three. God's clearest display of power is your changing life. 
right? As you go and interact with people, as we talk about opening up our tables to people, that Jesus might be present there with them, right? We, your, your clearest display of God's power is the way that you, you kind of say, you know, this was the person I was becoming. This was the person that I was prone to become. But this is what Jesus did instead, Right? And the more that becomes your testimony, the more that the power of God is revealed in your life. This is the Apostle Paul for what it's worth. Like, did he perform miracles? Yes, certainly. But when he writes in his letters, do you know what he writes about? He does not write about the miracles that he's performed. He says, here's who I should have been. Here's what my life was leading me towards. And then Jesus showed up to me and converted me to himself and started changing me and working in me and now this is who I've become so that whatever I had in my past life, and by the way, I had a lot, I counted all as trash for the sake of knowing Jesus. Right, so as we build relationships, the life that we live and the degree to which we live all out for Jesus, that is the clearest, most consistent sign that we can give that Jesus is powerful. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, I ask that you would give us clear discernment and understanding from your Holy Spirit to know how uh, we can meet those that we're walking alongside in moments of desperation. How we can show up to those moments and then through our knowledge of you, through our awareness of you, through you working in us by your Holy Spirit and by your grace, do something inside of us that we, we might be able to speak the ways that you work in our life and that those ways might be relevant to the people that we're interacting with. That, that as we talk about the work that you've done, as we share the work that you're doing with people, that you would uh, pinpoint the things for them that are personal, that are testimonies of your power and that they would become for those people signs that following after you and pursuing you is the right way to go. Jesus, I, um, I ask that you would continue to shape and form our hearts after you, that you have in so many ways shown us time and again that you are true, that you are good, that you are God, that you are divine in your power and that you have used that power for our sakes to welcome us into your family. Jesus, thank you for these gifts. And as we celebrate them even further in this worship service, we ask that you would make us very aware of your presence with us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, we are going to transition into a time of communion. So this was Jesus' first miracle that he performed that we talk about today. And Jesus' first miracle displays that he is the one who will bring about joyful abundance of the kingdom. But that he would bring that about in unexpected ways. Because before Jesus brings in the joyful, abundant kingdom, he sits down at a table with his disciples to say that the first step of his abundance would come from his own body and his own blood. Right? So, so, 
before the kingdom is fully established, he would die a death for sin and rise from death and then invite people throughout history from every tribe and tongue and nation to believe in him, to trust in him. He would extend his abundance to everyone before the day when he is coming back to establish that abundant kingdom. So uh, we are then invited to the table. This is kind of our first week of doing this, but we're going to start doing this every week from here on out, this practice of doing communion together. So, uh, so we have here the bread and the juice. The bread represents for us Jesus's broken body. The juice represents for us Jesus's shed blood. And he uh, extends these to us as gifts for us to receive, right? He opens up his table to people so that whoever believes in him, he actually calls us to say, hey, partake of my body, partake of my blood, receive my forgiveness, celebrate it, revel in it. it come to my table time and time again so that you can know the extent to which I'm willing to welcome you. Right, so if you're here with us this morning and you are a believer in Jesus, this is a table that we celebrate together. So if you're coming from another church, you've never been with us before, you are invited to partake with us. If you are here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, I just want to let you know this table is something specifically reserved for people who have trusted in him. Right now, we put this table here as a reminder that if we're in the worship service together, we all have been recipients of his hospitality. But he put this table aside in a particular way to say that those who believe in me, those are the ones I'm extending the welcome into my family, the grace and the forgiveness that comes from me. So this is how things are going to work. And this is probably where you want to listen up because this is a new way of doing things, right? So, uh, so, we're, the way that this is going to work is in a moment, we're going to have a, a chance to reflect. And in that reflection, there will be a little bit of silence. There will be some quiet music uh, as well underneath that moment of reflection. And then as you reflect, somewhere, it'll be about three to four minutes, somewhere in that three to four minute time frame. As you feel led, right, there's, no, there's nobody who's going to come tap on your row and tell you to come, uh, come get it. But as you feel led, somewhere in that three to four minute time frame, I invite you to come up and simply take a piece of bread from one of the plates, take some juice, and then take it back to your seat, right? So you can come down this middle aisle here, uh, and then there are also, uh, there's a lot of uh, space here in the front as well if you want to come that way. So you come to the table, uh, take a piece of bread, take it, take a, cup of juice, and then uh, return back to your seat. And then uh, after about three or four minutes, um, we will, uh, Garth is actually going to lead us to eat and drink together. And then after we eat and drink together, what we're going to do is we're going to respond together in worship of Jesus. So um, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, he lifted it up to heaven, he gave thanks to God for it, he broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Alliance Bible Church, I'd invite you to take some time in reflection and then as you feel led to come to the table.
So church, I invite you to receive the benediction from 1 Timothy chapter 2. As we've been talking about Jesus's power this morning, I want you to hear this testimony about Jesus's power. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Alliance Bible Church, it has been a joy and a privilege to worship with you this morning. Thank you for worshiping with us.